So I sat up and watched the parade as I love to do the Macy's uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. And usually I, I wait till the end for Santa Claus to show up. So now, OK, we're officially in the in the holiday season. But uh, Santa Claus was accompanied by Mariah Carey this year, who mm. I guess is arguably the queen of <laughs> the right. holiday season. The bug, all of that to say the bug has bitten me. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you in the uh, holiday season yet? Are you still bah humbugging around here? When did I ever buy a humbug? <laughs> Not this year. No, it'll come. It'll come. The the yeah. humbug will come. <laughs> yep. No. What the the thing is, I I like to be able to go and get, jump in my car, drive somewhere to look at lights. If I need to get you know that Christmassy feeling, I can go to a holiday market. I just don't keep it in my house. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I going to put a tree anyway? Well, I mean, that, well, we'll get into that in a second. But quick shout out, of course, to Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music, and music education. I'll uh, say a little bit more about what the Schubert Club has coming up uh, for this holiday season uh, coming up, but. Uh, where are you going to put your tree? Where are we going to put our tree, Scott? But you know what? There's going to be a tree in here. <laughs> There's always room for the holiday spirit. And I uh, have been waiting for months and months and months to come out and share one of my new favorite holiday tunes. I, I, I told myself that we're, I'm going to wait until after Thanksgiving, but we're here. So I thought I would share it with you okay. and share it with everyone for all of us to sort of get into that holiday season. All right. <laughs> it's in the singing of a street corner choir. It's going home and getting warm by the fire. It's true wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. A cup of kindness that we share with another. A sweet reunion with a friend or a brother. In all the places you find love, it feels like Christmas. It is the season of the heart, a special time of caring. The ways of love make clear. It is the season of the spirit. The message if we hear it is make it last on here. That of course comes from the Muppet. Christmas Carol, a tune there called It Feels Like Christmas. I don't know if you have watched that or remember, but that's the one where uh, Michael Caine is Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, that's, so okay. You, you see a <laughs> someone who plays the role very well mm. have a have a flip around. Um, that was a a, a special that that particular uh, Christmas production is one that I didn't see until last year. I, I'm pretty sure last, if not last year, definitely the year before last was my first time being exposed to it. It happened to be on TV. Dell already knew it, but mm -hmm. um, I, I watched it and and loved it. Uh, are there things that have come, especially holiday themed things, that have come into your sphere after they've existed for a long time? That helped you get into the spirit or something that you are happy to uh, have, have discovered sure. been late to. One of my favorite memories was the um, the Christmas after I turned 21. Everybody else had went to sleep and dad made a picture of Mai Tais 
and we watched uh, A Christmas Carol with George C. C. Scott. So that mm. became the benchmark. Was that black me. and white or? or I'm, I'm really asking. I'm actually asking. Calm down. It was color. Okay. Yes, we had no, color. Because one of my favorite things to do on Christmas Eve is to find an old black and white Christmas mm. Carol. That you know, yeah. one that might maybe even yeah. feels a little spooky. Of, like with so. Albert Finney. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about? And and you're a you're a theater person. Is a uh, a Christmas Carol the no? Yeah, mm-hmm. a Christmas. Is that something that we just need to put put to the side. Is that the Beethoven of Christmas plays? I guess we have the Nutcracker out there as well, but that's more of a ballet. So. I don't think so. I think that it's going to bring in a crowd. I think that it's going to play a large part of the budget of the production companies that put it up. Yeah. Bet. But the new thing that has entered to gets me in that gets me every time is Elf. Yeah. Oh, see, and that's that's another example of one that I was late to that I've ended up enjoying oh, because, man. I, of course, I don't know anyone's name. The the main uh, buddy, the actor's name, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. I used to just reject everything that he was involved with. I even begrudgingly made my way through the episodes of The Office that <laughs> that he was in them. So <laughs> I, I guess I just decided one night, fine, I'll just watch this. And I fell in love. You know, at the end when they start uh, singing- That's what I'm talking um, about. Uh, Santa Claus is coming to yeah. town. I'm sitting there getting choked up. Yes. <laughs> Especially because uh, uh, I, I do love New York uh, at, at Christmas time mm-hmm. as, as it so beautifully uh, portrays there. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's- uh, I think it's cool, and I just want to give people of uh, the room and the permission. Not that it's up to me to give permission, but just the room for us to get into that holiday spirit. It we're works up, for me. We're, we're yeah. officially here. You know, there's there's no more fighting it, and there's so much good that can come from just warming one's heart. You know, I can't wait. I, I'm I'm saving a, a Muppet Christmas Carol for when we get a little closer to Christmas. Maybe when there's some uh, snow on the ground uh, outside. But I'm really Looking forward that ventrilo, you know, and as we were preparing for this, we discovered that ventriloquy has triloquy in it, but just with <laughs> with one L. One L, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, I didn't mean to, again to hit the applause there. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it works. But uh, I, I think it's uh, the other thing that I think about with that special. You know, they're bringing. There's going to be a new Fraggle Rock movie. I learned oh, at, wow. um, by watching the uh, the Macy's Christmas Day Parade. Okay. Uh, b- ventriloquy, puppeting, you know, um, marionetting, all, all of that stuff, age old art forms that people have managed to keep alive and and not only uh, keep as a children's thing. I, I kept seeing uh, commercials for a, a Comedy Central thing, you know, for the grownups where he's a, a, a ventriloquist artist. I wonder, you know, there must be some uh, comparisons or some some bridges that can be drawn between what has been done to keep that art form alive, the the uh, pu- I almost said the muppeting, the puppeting, the uh, ventriloquy, um, and when we compare that to so-called classical music, you know, it's still here. Brahms is still here. Handel's Messiah is still here. We'll talk about that in the fourth movement today. A Christmas Carol's but, still here. But th- I think, I guess the point is that it's been updated. I'm thinking, remember the, um, oh, sorry, y'all, my, my post-dinner uh, brain, uh, Vanessa Williams. When Remember her uh, Christmas Carol? Sure. She did one. You know, there there's so many versions of it, and you're telling the same story just in a way that connects with different audiences and pulls on different heartstrings. Sounds like what this art form needs to be getting more into. To be honest, I think that we will see the Nutcracker gone before we'll see a Christmas Carol gone. Why do you say that? Because more people get a Christmas Carol. Oh sure, sure, and then of course you know in the, in the Nutcracker we have the 
Chinese dance. And people are <laughs> and working. To, yes, that are, people are working to make that more sensitive. The music stays, but the representation in the Chinese dance has been changed. Yep. We we had this conversation last holiday season. How yep. even the music itself is kind of questionable. But I don't know. I, I've seen productions of the Nutcracker that uh, maybe I'm not remembering whether or not they removed the Chinese dance, but they definitely included an Africa and and it was long. Mm. (laughs) But, you know, that was fun. That's cultural competency that's, you know, uh, connecting to communities through what's on stage. I think we need uh, so much more of that, and it can definitely happen during the holiday season. I I don't I don't usually do two tracks in, in the opening, but there's. There's one other one I have to bring up, you know, just speaking of cultural competency through classical programming. Oh, you had to have known how excited I was the first time down at WUOT. I'm looking for more music to fill out the uh, the holiday programming for, for my show. Picked out an Imani Wins CD mm-hmm. and came across this one. better play that bassoon you better come on she's doing so it even, so even through you know I, I think we have even more opportunity than so many other art forms to really practice and demonstrate that cultural competency especially this time of year the the good old-fashioned carols as they're played by uh brass ensembles and orchestras and choirs it has its place and i think it's very important but i think if we uh will get beyond a our aversion to being in the holiday spirit number one you know we have the opportunity to do so much but by you know uh taking these old favorites and discovering or rediscovering new ways to approach them you know of course that's what we need to be doing year round but that's something that we can really really dig into for the holiday season so happy holiday season everybody i'm sure i'll be sharing some more of my holiday favorites uh between now and the uh new year but just wanted to get us started on the right hoof if i'm gonna go with a reindeer now holiday spirit we are in you it's also (laughs) it's also good to uh for me to revisit some of those uh, specials that I didn't watch growing up that I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and those sort of stop motion. I think maybe I was a little afraid of it as a child. Oh, there, yeah. There's something about that snowman yeah. that didn't sit right with me. <laughs> yeah, that... There, there was that element for me, but the you know I can't I can't go on a, a Christmas season without watching it. Also, you need to look up Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Okay. That's uh, from the same uh, Muppet Factory. Or, oh, really? You know, children's Television Workshop, whatever Jim Jim Henson's outfit. I'll, I'll, I'll add that one to my to my list this year. You want to talk about getting choked up? That'll do it. You know, Rudolph. That special pisses me off because they had Rudolph fucked up out there. Mm-hmm. Like, not only were the other reindeer like not treating him right, it's the father who had him putting on the black nose in the yep. first place. See. You know, there's more important putting, things than comfort. Putting putting on a um, a black nose 
you know, <laughs> it's reminiscent oh, I, of so many other things. I knew this you know, was coming. We, we, we talk about blackface, but do we also need to talk about black, black nose black during nose. the holiday season? <laughs> but it was forced upon him. Right. And but and, and, and had a girlfriend and everything. But you Clarice. Know, but Clarice stuck by him, didn't she? She did. She she didn't care about that. She didn't care about that red nose. She thinks I'm cute. <laughs> anyway, happy holidays, everyone. This is another opus of Triloquy. Let's jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 176. Thank you so much for joining us. To returning listeners, we could not do this without you. Your continued support is why this show exists. Thank you so much for uh, coming back and listening week after week and uh, offering your support. We could not do this without you. Thank you so much. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and challenges it. We take conversations, we take uh, pieces of music uh, that we affirm as classical, American classical or otherwise, and we approximate that to the general conversation of diversity and equity in the field, all toward the end goal of decolonizing that phrase, classical music. For more information about Triloquy, uh, to check out past opuses, something popped there. Oh, oh that candle over there that it cracked. It, it, it's fine. Uh, we're, we're, we're live in the moment. Thank you. Um, <laughs> to check out, uh, learn more about the Trilogy Podcast, to donate, to check out past opuses, uh, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. We want to thank them for all of uh, their support uh, over this fall and winter season. We couldn't do it without you either. They have some very uh, incredible things coming up uh, in this uh, upcoming month of December for both of the holiday season and otherwise coming up on December 15th it's Songs of the Season carols by Minnesota composers the annual Songs of the Season program features original winter songs and carols by Minnesota composers and songwriters you can learn more about that at schubert.org thank you uh, to everyone over there once again we have multi-time Grammy nominated artist Curtis Stewart coming uh, to the third movement very excited uh, to have Curtis on today Uh, it looks like like Scott serendipitously, we're a, a little bit in a, a little bit in a, a hip hop mood for the second movement. What That's are you right. bringing in, um, dear Silas, who is a native of Jackson, Mississippi? And uh, I don't. You, you said that you hadn't come across his name. I hadn't. No. Uh, and I think that more people should. He's um, he's doing some great things in Jackson. Yeah, I'm going to bring in uh, some music by Blanco Brown, who uh, I learned about watching the Macy's Day Parade. See, music education. Very good. <laughs> you got your daily dose. I did indeed. But uh, for right now, we will jump into movement one. Going right back to the, the Muppets real quick. I feel like Triloquy Puppets... <laughs> would get problematic real quick. I mean, I need to see mine first. How? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like they would mess up with the hair. They would just do something weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, shout out to all the puppeteers out there. But uh, we're getting this uh, first movement started with an accidental, 
I don't know. What do you, what do you think this New York Times article gets? Uh, I'll, I'll say a sharp for the the Sphinx um, organization. Sure, you'll, you'll you'll give it a sharp as well. Yeah. How about you give this one to us? Well, I wanted to bring in this article from the New York Times. The headline is: They were ahead of the curve on diversity in classical music, and the byline is: The Sphinx organization, led by Afa Dworkin, is celebrating 25 years of pressing the field for more diversity in repertoire and rosters. Mm -hmm. You went to the Sphinx Conference, the annual Sphinx Conference, right before the world ended in February of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, what you think? Let's 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 revisit that. But uh, to to jump into this, your your memories of uh, the Sphinx Conference as someone who hasn't gone. You know, I've I've been going for a decade now. Right, uh, but. You were new to the pool. Right. For those who don't know, the Sphinx organization uh, focuses on classical musicians in the Black and Latin communities. It started as a competition, and now there is an annual conference where um, there's still the competition, correct? And maybe you can outline some of the other things that uh, that the Sphinx organization does. They have a, a touring orchestra. They have a record label, mm -hmm. all these sorts of things. It's all dedicated to Black and Latin musicians. Yeah, the conference and the competition are sort of the uh, centerpiece of what the organization does. Their mission is to... Uh, uh, let me, let, let me go to the website and, and, and read it, actually. Well, the, one of the things that I wanted to bring this in is because a lot of people here might hear this podcast and get the idea that nobody is really doing the work for marginalized musicians. Right. For, but for 25 years, the Sphinx organization has been doing the work to... Uh, Celebrating the so, power of diversity right. through classical music. I wanted to make sure I, I got that right. But I mean, you, you talk about, for folks who don't know... It seems, I mean, from my, I'm, I'm in the music game. I get it, but Sphinx is the name, you know, when it when it comes to these conversations, to uh, diverse orchestras, X, Y, and Z. It's always, from my perspective, been that Sphinx is the the leader, uh, the 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 epicenter for 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 all that sort of work. Mm -hmm. um, was Sphinx conceptually just as an organization? Also new for you back in 2019, 2020? Well, I had heard about them as an organization yep. years before, but um, my first time attending it, uh, I was kind of blown away at the size of it at first. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I thought that everything was really valuable, and not to mention the fact that we conducted half a dozen interviews for the first season of the Triloquy podcast yep. right there in... The room yeah. right there in the hotel room. Yeah, it was. It was. It, it's that. That's one of the main, the, the great things about it. So, I, I guess going back to this um, article, one of the uh, huge aspects that is celebrated about Sphinx is the family nature of it. You know, the right. the the heavy heavy networking that you can do. So many of the relationships that uh, I have cultivated over the years, which have resulted in a number of things, not just guests on the Triloquy podcast, but uh, professional collaborations <laughs> in the field and partnerships and just friends that I've met. It's happened at the, the Sphinx conference and it's really, you know, incredible work that they have been doing over these past 25 years that uh, the New York Times is highlighting here. 
That's one of the things that I wanted to mention too, was the uh, creation of community. And as they start this article, the author writes about uh, a woman who sees uh, a young musician in a hallway crying. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they lost, it's because they got there thinking that they were going to win mm -hmm. and instead found loads of people who were better. And there was, it, it just kicked the door in on community. Yeah, And um, Afa, met Afa met Aaron Dworkin. They became friends for, they were friends for a long time before mm -hmm. they actually married, right? And one of the quotes she said was, he had a problem with the world and he was going to do something about it. And he did, didn't he? Right. 25 years, they're celebrating 25 years of, um, of doing this work, the competition, the conference, the support. Uh, they also provide um, better quality instruments for young musicians. There's, uh, you mentioned the Sphinx Lead program. Yeah, they uh, among their other projects, you have Sphinx Lead, which uh, trains uh, up and coming arts administrators for uh, leadership roles in the yeah. field. So you know there are orchestra CEOs, um, all uh, school deans, all sorts of stuff uh, that have uh, that's come out of uh, Sphinx Lead. Uh, there's also uh, the Sphinx Venture Fund, which organizations uh, as large as the American Composers Forum, America's Composers Orchestra, like big time organizations apply for. So it's not only just exposure uh, for black and brown musicians, but it is you know some real dollars to right. organizations who are working to uh, to to do something. We when I was back at NPR. We applied for a Sphinx uh, Venture Fund grant one time. We didn't get that one. <laughs> Not that one. But, but you know, we're, we we thank them anyway. Uh, there, there, and there's also a Sphinx Tank that I, you know, would be remiss. That was a lot of if fun. I, um, if, if I didn't mention that, you know, folks who have an idea, some sort of entrepreneurial idea, uh, you pitch it to a panel uh, at the Sphinx Conference and somebody gets some money. You know, that's how I've met a lot of people and how a lot of projects have have uh, uh, come to bloom. So, sure. you know, so so th so th that's the pretty. Uh, mm -hmm. There was one <laughs> there was one quote from Alpha that stuck out that I wanted to address with yeah. you. Uh, about three quarters of the way down the article, it says what they have not ever wanted to do was create their own edifices. Right. One option would have been to start a kind of Sphinx conservatory, but the vision was never separate but equal, Alpha said. It was how do we nurture, empower, lift up, and create on-ramps within the existing structure? Yeah. How do you feel about that piece? You know, I think it's very easy for work from the inside or within existing structures to sound Pollyanna-ish, to sound kumbaya. But the way I think about it is that building our own tables, our own spaces is vital. And there are spaces that have to be shaken up a little bit. There are spaces that have to be decolonized. If we're using the metaphor of the lunchroom, okay, there wasn't a lunch table for for the people of color, let, let, let's just you know go with that. So they built their own table. So how, now that's the most popular table in the lunchroom, mm -hmm. as uh, tends to happen. Mm -hmm. And there are still and and there's some cross you know uh, community things that's cross lunch table things that are happening. And then you have a few of those lunch tables who have been historically Brahms and Beethoven and all of those people who are actually sitting over there comfortable. It's nice what y'all are doing over there in y'all's corner, but we're over here and da da da. You know I'm the type of person who feels like that lunch table needs to be dealt with. So I love that, you know, I have a lunch table to sit at and that uh, people of color have a lunch table to sit at. I have to go shake that one up. That's mm -hmm. always been my thing. And I feel like that's how, appro that's how I approach what Afa is, 
saying there. It's not about, um, you know, only building our own and creating, as she said, this separate but equal sort of thing. There are systemic infrastructure level things that have to happen within those systems. And the Sphinx organization is, you know, doing doing something I, yeah, about it. I think the end of the quote kind of sums up what you just said. Afa said about Aaron, he didn't want a new Juilliard. He wanted Juilliard to look like New York. Right. Um, the, the other question that I had came, came out near the end. Uh, Sphinx has resisted calling for the elimination of blind auditions. Yeah, yeah, that's at odds with your opinion too, isn't it? It is, but you know, we 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 aren't a monolith, and many people uh, have have various opinions. Uh, does let me see. Does does Alpha actually say something about that here? Uh, she doesn't. Um, but I think you know the again the idea is about. Um, when, when it comes to the blind auditions, and I don't want to speak for anyone, I guess I'll speak for myself here. It seems like there's this dedication to proving that we can, you know, even within the structures, uh, despite the barriers and despite all of that stuff, we can. So uh, they, they've put a, a lot of work into uh, programs that offer audition support. You know, at the Sphinx Conference every year, there are a series of mock auditions that people can take just ah. practice at at doing it. So it's not that they're yeah. taking the issue yeah. of blind auditions and saying, well, it, it is what it is. They're actually, you know, they're also directly addressing that in the creation of some of these programs that can help people be successful at auditions. But you are correct. I believe that if an orchestra just wants to hire black musicians, that's, that's as simple as fucking that, mm. you know, just hire the black musicians. But I understand that there are a lot of musicians who take pride in having won sure. that audition. You know, uh, my my orchestra job down in Knoxville, I can proudly say, is one that I earned and won all the way from, you know, however many 50, 60 bassoonists that was in the room at the beginning of the day. And then Garrett McQueen, last man standing, you know, mm -hmm. so there is some pride in that um, at the same time. I am more about that direct line. I never have uh, dissonance about somebody getting something or if I were to get something because I'm black, you know, that would not, you know, be a thing mm -hmm. for me. And I don't know. I, I like the idea of of exploring that everywhere. Uh, an orchestra is the type of job that. You know, I would say at least as it exists today that you can't just jump into, you know, if I am i don't play the trumpet, so I can't go be a diversity hire in an orchestra as a trumpet player because that's just not appropriate. I think there are other areas where that learning curve, that that training curve isn't as deep and those direct hires could be instituted. You're, you know, in another life and in, in another world, you are the uh, program director uh, the the head honcho at your own radio station. Would you, and, and it was all white, okay, would you have a problem finding some way for your next hire to be a person of color, if, if not a black person? Would that be something that you would personally have dissonance in doing directly to, to speak to that issue? Would I have dissonance doing it? No, but we would have a problem if it's an all white organization. You're going to have a hard time attracting people of color as talent. Right. So, I guess that that multi uh that that joint front, that multi front is beneficial in that way if you have uh musicians who are making their way through that pipeline, winning auditions and sitting in orchestras and that's how we get some uh diversity, that's great. Um I also think the proof is in the pudding and 
the blind auditions as they've been instituted now for, you know, probably about 50 years. I think they started doing it in the uh, 60s and 70s, maybe even before. We still don't see the racial diversity in orchestras that we need to see. It definitely Mm. has done something for gender diversity over the years. I think there was an article uh, that the New York Times put out last week about for the first time there were more women than men on their uh, orchestra roster, you know, so it, it has done something for uh, gender equity. But if you just look at the field, those blind auditions haven't quite done what they need to do for racial equity. So again, I guess this is Sphinx's way of dealing with that pipeline. It's mm. not that the talent doesn't exist. It's just that um, the the talent somehow isn't uh, making it over that hurdle. So, you know, that's how that's how they do that. All, all of my long rambling to say I'm not opposed necessarily to Sphinx's opposition to not pushing against the uh, uh, the curtain, just taking the curtain down and hiring black because they are addressing it in their own way. I think that's, you know, the the foot that they have to rightfully stand on is that they're they're doing what they can on that side of of the discussion to really um to incorporate some positive change. And just as they are doing what they can to uh, affect that positive change, there's also this last bit uh on their organizational tactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, It says here, the Dworkin's preference for quietly lobbying legacy institutions has struck some as old-fashioned in a culture dominated by call-outs fueled by social media. Your hot take. Yeah, I have cooled off a little bit (laughs) since 2020. Okay. I think call-outs are still very important. You know, I'm thinking about what you said last week regarding uh, Harvard and Esperanza Spalding. They needed to be hit between the eyes, Mm -hmm. as as you said. So I don't know. It seems like there is use to that call-out. Um, and and you know full full disclosure, I did interview um, Alpha and Aaron. That uh, I'm I'm going to share that with y'all coming up in January, closer to the conference. But one of the things that we talked about was the fact that there is that sort of behind the scenes call out. You know, the Sphinx organization calling up X Y Z orchestra, saying, "Okay, your season, it's all white. What are we doing about it?" And and that inspiring a programming shift or a personnel shift. Mm. Um, so I think if the if the outcomes are are uh are measurable even if only a little bit i think there's something to that it doesn't mm. always have to be call out call out call out but um, but it has to be a balance you know we talk about balanced programming right <laughs> well i think we have to talk about balanced activism and and balance of uh, uh paths forward have your opinions shifted or changed or been influenced these past few years when it comes to call out i mean you can't even deny that call-out culture to a degree has uh, been a great catalyst for change, certainly in the arts. Sure. Has it changed? Not much. Because I've always been thinking we need to get rid of (laughs) this older stuff and focus on the people who are making the music now. Yeah. And and I wasn't focused on race at that point. I just wanted new yeah. New stuff. Let's get rid of the the early music and the rent. And I know that people are going to, you know, throw darts for that comment, but that <clears throat> that's just not my bag. And I know that to evolve and for radio to evolve with it, yeah. we need to start thinking about what we're going to jettison, what we're going to quit playing in favor of the new stuff that we're going to be forming. I don't think opposition to 
call out. Well, I don't know, but let's let's read what it says here again. It says there have been debates both within Sphinx and from outside about the organization's tactics. The Dworkin's preference for quietly lobbying legacy institutions has struck some as old fashioned in a culture dominated by call outs fueled by social media. So it's like that's the same quote I read. Yeah, they didn't. You know, just to think about it more, it didn't say here. They are against call out culture, or th- or they, no. you know, uh, stand uh, separate from people who call out. It's just talking about their preference in doing so. I think we we have to be careful the way that we uh, look at organizations' uh, unwillingness to be more to the front in that way, because that doesn't necessarily mean opposition to something else. It just means that's not the way they do it. And I'll, I'll admit, I have been critical of Sphinx in the past for for not uh, doing the call out thing to the degree that I have or that others have. And while, you know, the change has been very incremental over these past 25 years, I would hate to see what it would look like if Sphinx wasn't here right. having the behind the scenes conversation. So yeah, I was just that, that's to, where I am now. Yeah, I was about to say, I celebrate it. I celebrate everything that they have done because they've been successful at it for 25 years. And I think it's a shame that more people don't know about the organization, yeah. actually. Yeah, and, and like I said, I've I've <laughs> it's funny to me that there are still people who don't know what this organization is. I imagine that anyone who, you know, had never heard of them before 2020 certainly, you know, looked them up or, or got on their radar then. So we're gonna see what this conference looks like. I mean, this is the first in-person conference uh since February 2020. So it's definitely gonna be a, a family reunion in many ways. Huge. I'm looking forward to uh being there and seeing folks. I'm gonna be on a couple of uh panels, but I'll I'll dig more into that uh with Alpha and Aaron uh in uh January when they're featured here on the Trillium podcast the you know the last thing i'll say is that it's really just opened up uh so many doors just the space that they have created let's take all of the programs all of the uh money donated all of those things and and push that to the side getting professionals uh of of like mind or of similar mind in a space for a few days is something that doesn't happen all the time there are a lot of conferences out there for all the con- may I, well, I won't speak to you, but for all the conferences that I've been to, Sphinx feels a little different. You, I remember you're saying that I was um, like not. You didn't say it like I was a fish in water, but in in my no, vibe you were, or, no, you were in your element, in, right? Exactly in in my element, your natural you know, habitat. That is that is something that uh, a refresher, like a, a replenisher, that we need. Sure, and and Sphinx has uh, created that space. So shout out to Off and Aaron. Looking forward to featuring them on the Truly Quick Podcast. Uh, coming up in January. Well, uh, to get us uh, to our next accidental, I wanted to share a performance by the Publi Quartet. Again, uh, we have uh, Curtis Stewart coming up in the uh, second movement, uh, and I'll, I'll share a little bit of the music that they were uh, nominated uh, for at this year's Grammys. But um, I always think about Publi Quartet when I think about Sphinx, because they uh, their performance at Sphinx one year, years ago, sort of sparked my interest in new music. You know, of course, they're a string quartet. Quartet, but just moving away from not only the uh, the typical composers, but the typical aesthetics, you know, can be so inspirational. You know, that that is something that I think about when I think about what inspired the way that I approached radio uh, getting into the biz. You know, like you, I was 
all about the new music. And on that journey is when I learned more about black composers, women composers, right. composers of color, you know. And of course, that has built into, you know, what we're doing here and what we both do in our uh, broader careers. And, you know, for me, that that wouldn't be quite the same if it weren't for uh, Sphinx and certainly not for the Publi Quartet. So uh, here's a, a, their performance of a, a work by Rhiannon Gittens. It's called At the Purchaser's Option. A little bit of this to get us into our next accidental. I think Rian and Gittens, uh, someone who has uh, presented and spoken at Sphinx, you know, is another great example of, of you know, what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, those uh, same ideas, but new aesthetics and yeah. different approaches. I mean, she exists in so many arenas and fields, you know, there, there's nowhere where she's not going to belong. And that's the opportunity we have for stuff like chamber music. You know, this piece of music that we just got done hearing, it doesn't belong everywhere. Maybe it doesn't belong on a hip hop station, but I could definitely hear it on jazz, certainly classical. If you wanted to go all the way to the easy listening or the the, the Sunday morning, or sorry, the uh, Sunday afternoon sort of uh, filler time that some of the smaller public radio stations do, you know, some of them have the Thistle and Shamrock mm -hmm, or the, mm -hmm. you know, the other Americana, that this music could fit there as well you know that's really the opportunity i feel like we have um as you know arts presenters and arts performers that ability to really transform and fill more spaces not divide you know as Alpha was saying not that separate but equal but something that can uh, uh, uh be beneficial to more communities and and to to broader communities it, it's all there and i think the public quartet rian and gittens and and sphinx has been uh doing a great job in in showcasing that reality yeah well, I have an accidental this week. I'm gonna uh, give, I'm gonna give the issue at hand a flat, <laughs> but but the you know the the writer and the writing a sharp. This comes from uh, I care if you listen .com. Again, shout out to everyone over there at I care if you listen. The headline here is classical music's racial awakening. Was it all a mirage? Okay, so first things first. This conversation doesn't feel new. Mm -mm. You know, the the idea that, OK, we've cooled off from the um, from 2020 and what organizations are doing that that was a thing, maybe uh, 2021 and, and earlier this year in 2022. But now we've had the conversation of organizations not, you know, cashing the check that they wrote that that is just so recurring that this conversation, at least this headline kind of gives a OK, yeah. Here, here we are again. You know, the organization still haven't done nothing. Do, right. I mean, do, do you think uh, 
I don't know. What, what, what do you think about the, the repetition of this specific conversation? Uh, is, d- does that just mean, or what does it mean for this specific aspect of the conversation? Was the racial awakening all just a mirage? What does that say about the issue that we're talking about? It's not moving quickly enough for some people, is my opinion. Um, not knowing what the behind the scenes um, culture is like on a lot of uh, or- uh, orchestras, ballet, opera, radio stations, whatever. I can speak from my perspective. Yeah. When you know, because they highlight that all of this started happening right after George Floyd was murdered in 2020, and uh, American public media had started to make a a, a shift. Uh, it was very small, very very small. And then after that murder happened and all the unrest afterward, we had to organize behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. We had to get everybody in line and not everybody was on the same. I'm mixing metaphors, but you get what I'm saying. Not everybody was in the same spot. And so I am imagining that other organizations are doing something similar. They're trying to get organized. And that's why it looks like nothing's happening. But uh, So is your charge, or maybe I should say, is your bit of encouragement the fact that even though it's not fast enough for many of us, I'll put myself in that, mm-hmm. that does not mean it's not happening. Well, what well, what do we do with the, or what should we do with the, it's not happening fast enough energy, if that's really how we feel? You know, I've, I've you know, <laughs> done a lot of journeying in trying to center, you know, the positive and the actual change mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, disparaging for not fast enough X, Y, and Z. Even so, it's hard for me to pretend that I see something that I don't see. Sure. So, you know, what what should the approach be? Fine. There are things that are maybe happening behind the scenes, we're being told, but where's the proof? What mm-hmm. what 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 do we do with just the word of, well, things are coming along? Sure. Um, speaking from my perch, you have uh, changes in programming where Florence Price and William Grant still are being highlighted. Everybody can do that. But we're talking about the Devante Hineses and the DBRs and the Carlos Simons. You know, we're mm-hmm. doing more and more of that. And I, uh, I saw in this article, there's, uh, there's three uh, right around the um, whiteness as property bit, uh, quality, markability, and name marketability and name recognition come into play when you're talking about radio. And I have seen dozens of emails come in wanting to know why Price is being highlighted over Brahms, Mm -hmm. why William Grant still over Mozart. And then even if you provide them with like, look, the number of spins that these canon composers got dwarfs, still dwarfs the um, amount of, of black composers that we're playing. And that is insulting to the person who initiated the emails. So I know that organizations are doing the work of trying to find that correct balance of not alienating their entire base and also trying to dangle the carrot to get new listenership and people of color. And that's one of the things that's highlighted in this article uh, regarding uh, the the base. At the end of the day, we're not only talking about you know, audiences, but we're talking about sources of of income. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're talking about uh, contributions, and I get it. You know, the the problem is with that 
multiple generations of, you know, platforming the European canonical composers over the black composers, over the women composers. There is an audience that is cultivated. There is a culture that's cultivated with that form, with that type of white supremacy. My opinion is that organizations need to reevaluate if that's the audience you want. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. let's let's turn it into a a, a physical space. Uh, if ninety two percent of the people that typically fill your space, whatever a restaurant, uh, a nightclub, or whatever sort of business you have, feel away <laughs> about black composers yeah. being you know platformed or 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 being centered. You know, we can talk about what that says about that audience or, or or that that group of people, but what does it say about you as a business owner? You know, so let's let's speak directly to the arts. If you are afraid that a season of music strictly and exclusively featuring black composers and let's say women composers as well. So let's let Amy Beach and them in there. Mm -hmm. If it's black music and women composers all season long and you are going to lose, you're afraid you're going to lose half of your audience base. Why is that not an audience base you're willing to lose? Why isn't that because something they, that draws alarm? Because they you? haven't cultivated the new one yet. They don't have any th anybody to, to, to stand into those spots that were vacated. So are we talking about building a new audience at the same rate that you, you know, take the so-called risk and let the other I, audience I think go, a, or, or what's the what's the approach? I think a lot of people are trying to figure out that alchemy of that mixture right now, and of course, if if they, if there's a backlash, of course there's a retreat, <laughs> right? Oh wait, oh we've 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 played Florence Price too many times this week. Okay, well we got to back up, we got to back up and do something different. Let me let me actually read a little bit uh, from. Did this. I get up the topic? I'm sorry. No, it, it's fine. Uh, the 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 writer here, uh, by the way, is Jennifer Grimm. We're going to hear a little bit of her flute playing uh, in a couple minutes. But I wanted to read. Uh, it, she writes here: More people deserve to have the experience of identifying with the music on our classical music stages. But despite the recent influx of diverse programming by influential arts organizations, the field remains overwhelmingly white. In the roots of white supremacy in the arts. Uh, Benjamin Douglas addresses the concept of, quote, whiteness as property, the assumption that when we speak of the arts as a genre, we are referring to Eurocentric traditions and repertoire. I'm highlighting that because what we're talking about, again, is a culture shift. Mm -hmm. We have cultivated audiences. We have nurtured and placated to audiences who hear that word, the arts, and think of something that doesn't include many of us does not include the global majority at that. I think this is a very uh, poignant way of pointing out sort of the converse issue in that when you, um, you know, build a culture where you have so many artists wanting to be known as just a flugelhorn player and not a black flugelhorn player or not mm -hmm. a woman flugelhorn player. We have we have conditioned people to aspire to that level of whiteness in the same way that people hear, quote, the arts and think about things that are Eurocentric. When someone hears violinist or harpist, something is similar is happening. Mm -hmm. When someone says orchestra or orchestral composer, something similar is happening. So yep. anyway, it's just a, it's an entire culture that have to shift that has to shift and I, I it's hard for me to see or understand how that culture shift can happen without some cost 
happening with, with, without the piper being paid uh, to, uh, in, in some way. And in my opinion, what that looks like is having to bite the bullet for a season or two and figure out how you get the audience that you need to uh, uh, replace the one that has abandoned you with. Again, I just don't feel comfortable. I could not feel comfortable knowing that my audience base would oppose the racial equity that I'm interested in as an organization, but I feel obliged to hold on to them until it's safe. I get, I get the whole, you know, don't quit your job until you have your next job. I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the, at the end of the day, this is so much bigger than that. I think it's, you know, it's people's jobs to make sure that the, the bottom line is met because there are people to pay musicians to pay much less the uh, folks behind the scenes, operations and development and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, this, this is the hole we've dug ourselves into. And it's hard for me to see a way to to really shift that culture if we aren't willing to pay that price. We have said a number of times that it's going to take a lot to get us out into uh, an orchestra performance, right? Yeah. Numerous times. Yeah. Okay, so they have to know that that uh, organizations have to know that that is happening. That, right? that there are people that just aren't coming that there are people who are like there's too much competition for my entertainment dollar mm. and if you are going to put on you know today's prokofiev's birthday let's say if you're going to put on a prokofiev symphony i'm not getting out of my comfy pants to go down and hear something that i can pull up on youtube and and sit like i'm in in the orchestra and listen to it and the sad thing is there is a garrett who will put on some pants to go see a prokofiev piano concerto or something for example especially you know if we put that you know and this is now i'm putting myself in, in the uh, presenter's role mm-hmm. if you contextualize prokofiev's life and uh and compare it to what's going on now over there in Russia and and other parts of uh, of Europe, you know the way that Prokofiev stood his ground and stood against the Stalinist regime, and you know had to pay the price for that. Yep. And, and his anyway, so there are all sorts of things that can happen to make it interesting. But that's Prokofiev. I'm especially not going to go see something by Handel or 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 Beethoven or or these other composers who are even less relevant than right. something that happened a hundred years ago. And if you have that attitude, and these organizations have done nothing to market to you to let you know what they're going to do, then you're not even going to know that they're playing music you would be more interested in. And and this is the thing. So how many years are we going to have empty seats? Before the audience they're trying to get realizes, oh, this they are doing something for me. I used to be categorically opposed to giving any money to any orchestral institution, you know, buying tickets to this or that. I would never do it. Okay. I've softened my stance. <laughs> there are certain concerts that I will pay to see. You know, mm-hmm. there has to be some black representation. There has to be something outside of of you know the the so-called norm, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna do that. Okay. So now I'm one of the people in those seats. It's taken this much work to even get me to consider, you know, spending some money and time to do that. There is much, much, much more work to get my neighbors and my homies and my uh you know, the, the, the folks that we have over for dinner or whatever, you know, it's, it's not all even about race, but just folks who have not taken on that culture that has been cultivated in these spaces that has has come to, you know, th- this reality. I, you know, 
maybe I need to have a, a CFO or, or a, a, the development director of some large uh, multi-million dollar organization on, on the podcast. But my opinion is that the price to pay, again, for that multiple generations of just ignoring anyone who wasn't a dead white man is going to be a few empty seats for a few concerts or maybe even a season or two. And once that dedication, as you say, once that track record is displayed, somebody's going to be like, oh, well, they they mean it. Let, let's go see what's what's going on. But in the that's meantime, what's between this and that yep. to me. So they have to think of something different so they don't lose 50% of their base trying to transition slowly into something that's more appealing to the audiences that they've never had. Now, how do we get those new ideas? And, and those if you new figure that out, you will be a cabillionaire well, if I, you can market it. I, I think it's laid out here uh, to it, extending this article toward the end here. It says, let's fill the concert halls with artists of color and include programming that challenges the traditional white supremacist hierarchy that has existed for so long. So it's not just get people of color in the space. It's get people of color's ideas and perspectives and sensibilities into the space as well. And again, it's a multi-front battle. We just got done talking about Sphinx. Sphinx is doing everything they can to get as many Black and Latina folks in there playing Rachmaninoff and Elgar. You know, that is one area in which that work has to be done. The area that I am even more interested in and, and back, you know, with my time and energy and philanthropic dollars and everything else are folks, again, that are trying to change that culture. We have to get people of color in the space and we have to allow people of color to use that space, to fill that space, to influence that space in the way that only we can, at least, you know, for the organizations that are alleging to care. Testify. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's uh, first movement. Again, huge uh, shout out to I Care If You Listen for always putting out some uh, provocative and important uh, bits of data. I'll have the links, uh, uh, content rather, I'll have the links in the description. Uh, and shout out to uh, Jennifer Grimm, who gave um, this uh, article uh, to us earlier this month. So to transition into the second movement, we're going to hear from Jennifer Grimm, an incredible flutist who brings here a bit of music by Astor Piazzolla, his tango etude number three to get into our second movement. Let me put you on the spot real quick. You know, oh, that'll be something we, new. We, we just heard that music by Piazzolla. Okay, you air Piazzolla on the radio. You've do. done your research, and you know your breaks on Piazzolla. Is is his life in music not an example of what we need to do in this part of the world when it comes to that decolonial approach? When I think about Piazzolla, I think about someone who took the tango 
you know, which was born, was the tango born somewhere in Europe or was it, or is the home of the tango somewhere else? I, I believe it's South America. Right. I, I agree. So taking something that is a part of, of their culture, foundational to uh, 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 who those people are and apply that to composition and then further apply that to what uh, is programmed and, and platformed. I feel like we have so many examples of that globally <laughs> mm. we just have it just hasn't quite caught on here i mean do, do you not see a, a connection there the decolonial approach how that can be sold through a composer like Piazzolla? sure and that makes me think of Feto Vila Lobos, yep. who um, did the Bacchianas Brasilieras mm -hmm. which you know you would think you were in a cantina in south uh south america listening to uh these uh, musicians going in and out of classical and weaving in their own yeah. uh, local uh, sounds. Love yeah, it. that's what it's that's what it's all about. And uh, we're we stretch that here on the Trilogy podcast even further. The United States arts institutions won't consider things like hip hop, American classical music, but damn it, we do here on the Trilogy podcast, mm -hmm. and that's what we're bringing for this week's second movement. Take it away, Scott. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has uh, put together a fund for radio stations who want to expand their urban alternative presence. You talking about a job that I would go out for. Right. You know, so R&B, hip hop host on a public radio station. Rap, hip hop, R&B, some of the classics, but mainly fo focusing on uh, the current uh, the current artists. Uh, at the Public Radio Program Directors Conference back in August down in New Orleans, I met Java Chapman, who is an executive producer with Mississippi Public Radio, and he is also a, uh, a DJ and producer for a new stream that they are calling The Sip. And their mission is concise. It's to the point, and it sums up what they need to be doing. Their mission is to spotlight local independent and national artists while providing a critical connection to the community and an engaging opportunity for the next generation of broadcasters. So we're talking about culture shift. This is what this sounds like to me, because just like people have an idea about the concert hall, people have an idea about public radio mm -hmm. and, and hip hop and R&B isn't a part of most people's ideas about public radio. So if you go to the sip.fm and you click on on air, you will see all of their hosts uh, they have all black hosts uh, supporting that mission that I just read to you. And one of the uh, one of the artists that I became familiar with through listening to the sip a little bit online is uh, Jackson, Mississippi's own Dear Silas. Have you ever heard this artist? I have not. Dear Silas. Now, this he he sparks a lot of conflicting opinions in me because there are some of his tracks that I just I I feel the lyrics and the flow and I really appreciate the way that he seems to have a sense of humor in his delivery his inflections are different than a lot of other MCs and and rappers that I've heard before but some of his tracks I just have to fast forward through because you know I have that trouble with the n-word that's sure. just me I got to get through all that kind of stuff you need the clean and, version of the songs <laughs> and I don't think there are any so um but he uh I think it was 2017 or 2018 he released uh an album called the cherry blossom and then he got signed to RCA mm. and he re-released that in 2019 and it starts out right from the first track, Hot, but I want to go uh, a couple uh, tracks in. I think it's the sixth or the seventh track to 
Cherry Blossom. Oh, so the album is Cherry Blossom, and also the t- the tune is Cherry Blossom as well. Yeah, the album is the Cherry Blossom, and the, the track is just Cherry Blossom on its own. But the uh, the lyrics that he's rapping in here talk about how he's been uh, consistently producing. Uh, consistently making music and people were trying to discount him and say you're not going to make it and he comes out and he's like and now look at you now you're coming to the shows i'm headlining things will never be the same yeah. swear i thought they never change yeah. man my life has been so awesome ever since i bloomed out like a cherry blossom things will never be the same yeah. Swear I thought they never changed And my life has been so awesome Ever since I bloomed out like a cherry boss Yo, my sister told me that she saw my friend from middle school riding on a bike Said he looked like he ain't eating days I pray to God he alright Maybe I should reach out to him Try and guide him to the light Devil talking to me in my ear Telling me it ain't my fight Yeah, it seems very introspective Very, you know, as hip-hop tends to be very lyric-driven With, you know, a multiple entendres And, you know, things that can pull at, pull at people's vibes and, and emotions It's pulling at you also tracks that are just dirty Skirt, skirt, go, go oh, I, That's one of the <laughs> ones that I'm like I don't know if I should be enjoying this or not but, well, I mean, so, you know, back to the concept of this being uh, discovered, you know, quote unquote, for people through public radio. Is that not one of the purposes of public radio is discovery, not a word that right. many of these organizations use in, in their mission statements and things? That's true. But my watchwords lately have been, we need to challenge biases rather than uphold them. And uh, that's what the SIP and other, uh, I believe there's five or six really high profile uh, I don't like the I don't like the classification of urban alternative either. That's something they're still trying to work through. Yeah, how are they going to identify this format? But um, we're we're seeing the beginning of the change of the face of of public broadcasting and what it can be. Yeah, if if you had to uh, make a case for you know maybe not necessarily this track specifically, but this sort of stream or this sort of uh, day part for a uh, uh, a public radio station, you know. Where where would you put it? Maybe this isn't morning drive. You know, let me let me be problematic for a minute. Maybe you know that's where the news show or whatever goes. Mm-hmm. Where would this go? Is this an overnight thing? Maybe a drive home from work? Uh, would you put it in the middle of the day? Where would you place this for the dual format station trying to be a part of this culture? Oh, shift? I got you. Yeah, I could hear that in the afternoon drive, or around nine ten o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I, when things are slowing down, right? A yeah, bit. and I'm, I'm thinking about you know maybe uh, driving home from whatever evening thing you had going on, or if, even if I'm leaving the concert hall, this is a refreshing uh, aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, to to join me home. So yeah, but he started out, you know, he plays uh, piano and trumpet, so there is uh, a very symphonic, or, or at the very least, you know. Uh, orchestral vibe to a lot of his tracks and this dance too that he's doing in all of his videos mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if the kids are doing it and i'm gonna look stupid <laughs> trying to do it or if i'll start a new trend uh, up here <laughs> you should give it a try on your instagram just see what just see what the feedback is anyway oh. shout out to dear silas that track called cherry blossom well uh, as i mentioned we both serendipitously landed in sort of a uh, a hip-hop or at least a hip-hop adjacent sort of aesthetic this week. So mm-hmm. I, I tend to uh, discover for myself artists that I hadn't heard about 
while watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. And that happened again this year. I'm, I'm not even going to give any buildup. I'm, I'm sitting on the couch uh, with my champagne and sherbet, minding my own business. And I'm blessed with this. Right now, I just need you to get real loose. Get comfortable. Grab your loved ones. Or grab your love partner. And if you're by yourself, no worries. Just follow after me. Yeah. Gonna do the two-step then cowboy boogie. Grab a sweetheart and spin out with him. Do the hold down and get into it. Take it to the left now and dip with it. Gonna throw down, take a sip with it. Now lean back, put your hips in it. Let's have some fun. Uh. To the left, to the left now. To the right, to the right. Now take your left Music there by Blanco Brown. That song is called The Get Up. Get with an I. The Get Up. <laughs> this was a, an artist that was a platform, as I mentioned, during the Macy's Day Parade. And I don't, I don't know how much, you know, that bit of exposure impacted his pocket or his streams, but mm. I'm among the new listeners. It, it, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And I think it's, it's, I don't know what to say about it other than that it's engaging. It definitely goes, okay? Mm-hmm, I, I, can, I can see myself doing a little uh, bit of footwork to that. It definitely gets into that er aesthetic that I've, <laughs> mm. that I've talked about in the past, you know? <laughs> How so? But you just hear those sliding guitars. You know, you were just talking about an artist from Mississippi. So I'm thinking about Mississippi. I'm thinking about the spaces in which I would hear that sound. And I'm making stereotypes. Fine. You know, that, so we can talk about the about healing and those many things. But hearing that aesthetic with that voice coming out of a black man and I can get behind the music. Like it's it's something that's, that's actually making me nod my head and, and want to dance. It's a winner. It's a keeper. Were people doing the electric slide on the float? Uh, they weren't doing the electric slide. They were doing the get up. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> have to have the dancers down there doing the whole thing. So, you know, we've th- there are many examples of like a country western hip hop crossover. You know, we, we've, we've seen it a few times over, over the years. And this is another one. I think there's something to be said about a family show, a so-called family show like the Macy's Day Parade, not being afraid. Of, of this aesthetic, Platforming that. you know, mm-hmm. um, I think there's something to be said about the opportunities that lie uh, <laughs> when it comes to uh, cross community unity and collaboration, you know, damn it. Like I said, before the, we cut on the mics, if this is what unity looks like, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> if this is the path that we need to take, right. so be it. And I don't know, uh, maybe it is a little... I guess, so let me ask you, the aesthetic of the track, would you say it's more one than the other, hip-hop versus country? I think the the heavy hip-hop influence is how I can get into it and appreciate those more country-western aesthetics. I would, is it overbearing? Is it is it too hip-hop to be considered a country track? No, I would I would part that right down the middle. The me beat, too. The beat is hip-hop and the rap is country. Yeah, the, the approach to the lyrics, even the, the guitar playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... You 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 ready to um, share this with your father? <laughs> See what he thinks. <laughs> um, my my question is how many more of how many more tracks? So we have Little Nas, Little Nas X, yes. Um, and I'm sure that there's something else that I'm forgetting. How many more of these tracks do we have to come get? These uh, 
How many more of these tracks have to be released before we go, okay, this is normalized, this is an aesthetic, this is a a, a way of making music? I think on the hip hop side, you know, on the on the black music side, we will accept this because we accept him. I think the the, the change and the uh and the shift is gonna come when we're actually hearing this in the honky tonk. Now I don't I don't be up in there. <laughs> but but maybe I will be if <laughs> you know if, if this becomes more normalized, you know, if, if I know that this is an example of the music that I could get in there, I'm I'm doing the get up as well. I'll buy my cowboy boots and, and put on a hat, you know, and, and have this fun. But I think that again, we're, that that culture, that that competency piece has to match. And there are just so few spaces that are split you know, artistically, as you say, down the middle, as this piece of music is. I think this track, The Get Up, is a great example of how that can be approached, you know? Just, just a little bit on uh, Blanco Brown, uh, uh, government name, uh, according to the Wikipedia here, Benny Amy the Third. It says, Amy was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, listening to hip-hop artists like Outkast. In the summer days, Amy would visit his grandmother in Butler, Georgia, where he would listen to country music such as Johnny Cash. Amy would go on to appreciate both forms of music. There are so many Country folks- and Western. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, there-, <laughs> uh, there are so many of us i'll say but you know folks in the arts who have you know always felt like we live this double life mm-hmm. now the country is coming out double life double life <laughs> i'm from tennessee damn it give me some let it rest. out let it um, out you know folks who feel like they have to leave the hip-hop or the gospel or whatever you know they love when they go to orchestra rehearsal and then the converse when they get back home if we can pull more stuff together as blanco brown has done Amen, hallelujah. I've my my heart breaks to think that you hear that music, which was started by black people, and now you and you think that you're in trouble. Well, you know, folks like Blanco Brown bringing bringing us back. He's 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 reminding us, and he's making the space one that we want to be in because you know that the or, the or, the the uh, the black foundation of it, you know isn't always the thing in no more than the fact that Florence Price was a black woman. Well, the, the concert hall is still not full of black women, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So th- there has to be that, that competency piece, but I've been listening to Blanco Brown and I'm looking forward to doing the get up. And I don't care who knows it. <laughs> so we both have dances to demonstrate on, <laughs> on social media. All right. Good luck. <laughs> well, uh, this week uh, we're, we're getting into the third movement. I had the pleasure of uh, sitting down with Curtis, Curtis Stewart again, a multiple Grammy nominee nominated uh, this year uh, with his group Publi quartet uh for the album what is american so if you're uh, interested in that uh or learning more be sure to check out my previous conversation with uh janita norpoth and curtis stewart of the public quartet but uh curtis joins me uh this week because he has a, a concert coming up uh, he'll be premiering uh the violin concerto of julia perry you know a black woman composer mm-hmm. whose name is Far, I can even say far more obscure than uh, Margaret Bonds or Florence Price, yep. but a composer uh, whose name is coming more and more to the front and that uh, Curtis Stewart is uh, helping a uh, platform. So uh, we talk about that. We uh, talk about, you know, again, that that competency piece. How do we approach things when it comes to language toward broadening um, audiences and um, everything in between? Such a, a pleasure to have him on. Uh, we're going to get started. I, the first thing I asked uh, Curtis is about, you know, being a 
multiple uh, time Grammy nominee. So, you know, mm-hmm. does that excitement go away? Does it shift? And we're going to uh, get into that conversation by listening uh, to a bit of the music that was nominated for my from that uh, for that Grammy. So from the album, What is American? As performed by Public Quartet, this is a track called Say I'm Different. Music by Betty Davis, um, arranged and performed here by Publi Quartet. Hope y'all enjoy and hope y'all enjoy my conversation with Curtis. excitement that because it's kind of out of your control i mean getting a you know you put your heart and soul into this work and then people decide to vote for it people decide to see it i mean the first round of the grammys i almost feel i mean they're it's very um you know there's a lot of people on the ballot there's probably like hundreds of people in especially in chamber music and so to think that you know that people either went through every i mean people don't have time to go through every single submission so i just feel it's just this feeling of gratefulness it's excitement it's the feeling for me specifically it's the feeling that you know oh yeah this music affirms that this music truly does well i know that it belongs but it that it belongs for other people in other people's minds um and that people are excited about it so it it stays the same and it also changes um i think this year last year was the, for a solo project of mine um it was actually really depressing to be uh, nominated because my mom had just passed like two months mm. before that. And the, the album was kind of dedicated to her. There was music of hers. There was music that was for her. And so, you know, I, I, it was kind of for her and for her to not be able to see that recognition was just kind of shattering for me. And I, I had no idea that it would be shattering. You'd think that it would be just a pure celebration, but I was I just couldn't. I was happy for approximately two hours. And then it was just like, this um sadness that i had never really felt before but this year is is a totally different story it's very celebratory i get to be with my friends public quartet you know nick Ravel from public quartet is um i mean we've been friends since day one of college in 2004 so we've just you know it's just a it's a different sense of celebration for sure well and i'm, I'm it was so also sorry. his birthday it was his birthday on the day that we were nominated yesterday oh wow, wow tuesday so that worked <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for your condolences. Yeah, it's it's still we're working through, you know, grief is a lifelong thing. But uh yeah, and I understand that she was a, a musician. Yeah, she was a violinist, played um her mom was an opera singer in the Warsaw National Opera. My mom played there. She also studied in Sibelius Academy in, in Finland, which is where I was born. Um and uh, I am an American, though. <laughs> 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 Even though I'm still waiting for my passport, I've been waiting for a passport for like seven months now. Anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. Um, she played uh, Greek music. She played classical music. She studied with Henry Threadgill and Steve Coleman, and was really into free jazz. And she played with Sam Rivers in one of his orchestras. So she was kind of really deep into the kind of downtown New York scene. 
um, as much as she was uh, the classical, just, you know, whatever traditional classical thing, like standard operas. Actually, I was thinking about Julie Perry. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm probably anticipating a question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Perry, you know, my, my mom had um, a really horrible, aggressive brain brain cancer. And so it was, I mean, it was sad, but it was also really interesting to witness her relationship to music change as she, as she lost control of her body, you know, not able to play violin, but, you know, playing keyboard and then also just watching her process the music. Um, and, and just also just digging into this Perry. I, I have no clue what her experience was. I have, I don't want to assume anything about it, but it helps me to relate to my mom. I'm just like, I know per Julia Perry had a stroke uh, kind of midpoint in writing this piece. She wrote the piece in the, uh, I believe in the sixties and then kind of kept revising it or wrote in the late fifties and then had a stroke somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, I just like to imagine myself working on this piece. You know, I just like to imagine kind of digging into the mind of someone who is a brilliant, absolutely genius, brilliant musical thinker, writer, who is now also grappling with, with, this uh it's really it's a disability but there's a there's a there's a beauty to it too because you see that you you can kind of feel them kind of um just trying to grapple with just intervals like the rep repetition of interval like it's just these intervals just keep repeating and i just remember seeing my mom literally playing the same two notes over and over and over and over again and that's not to say that that's what julia perry was thinking i don't know what her situation was i'm not assuming that mm -hmm. You know, she might have been full on, you know, full 100% the whole time. I don't know. But I just, it's just, it's just nice for me to think, think that way. Yeah, we have uh, musicians like your, uh, your mother, and then, you know, folks out here like Julia Perry, the composer who many of us are just now learning about. I mean, what do you see as the continued disconnect between um, uh, how we view this art form and, you know, the people that have just been sort of pushed out of the, the center of it, at least its perception. We can talk about sort of the historical dynamics of women being pushed to the side, Black women being pushed to the side. But it seems like there's, there's still something there that keeps these names in, in the margins. In the ether. Well, in Barry's case, I mean, this is a, it's a publishing issue, 100%. Hmm. Like, because I, I remember we were with quartet, we were trying to arrange a lot of her works, her, her the prelude for piano. We were trying to we Janina Norpoth, amazing arranger, um, is arranging part of public quartet also is uh, ha has a piece on this concert program coming up. Um, uh, Ye who seek the truth. Um, she we were able to arrange that <laughs> legally. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's like you can't even present different forms of the work there's no one to talk to because there's no public there's it's just it there's no one to talk to and so actually that's kind of the heroism of this guy roger zahab who is now have he had he create he did create a string orchestra uh, arrangement of the prelude he did create and help push this um violin concerto into ex existence i think it's with presser and um it's just to have people that are willing to do that kind of nitty-gritty admin work i think that's that's part of it and then the, i mean i you know i i mean if you can't get a really great recording of something and your mu music is even remotely uh you have to like rethink how you feel music about you know about it mm -hmm. i think uh it takes a while for it to really latch in that has nothing to do with perry being a person of color or 
a woman, <laughs> but uh, there's that element for her specifically. Um, and I think it's just it's just easier to it's easier for certain organizations to do what what they have done and what everybody else has done because there's so many models of that work that it's easy to do. You're trying to do what other people have done either better or differently, and it's it's much easier to do that. I mean, those are my those are my uh, hopeful. My very hopeful responses to your question. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, the question often comes up, well, why do we know names like Margaret Bonds and Florence Price much mm. more than we know a name like Julia Perry? And from my perspective, it has a lot to do with aesthetic. You know, I, le- mm. I first learned Julia Perry's name in the in the world of radio and, and broadcast. And I just found that the general aesthetic of Julia Perry's music was a challenge for the so-called traditional audience. I wonder what your yeah. your response is to that. Do you think it's the uh, if the aesthetic is a variable in the marginalization of this composer? Totally. I mean, you. I mean. You know, when people hear the word Schoenberg, they shudder. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you, despite all the beautiful things that have emerged from beautiful things in his rep and also that have emerged from his rep. Um, and, you know, Julia Perry, I wouldn't say she's Schoenbergian, I would, but she is definitely in that modernist, verging on a tonal, bridging a tonal tonality. She's in there. So I think that's certainly a thing. I think she was also kind of ostracized within the within the black community of, you know, uh, and during her time, I don't know the details of that. I've just heard vague stories from various people. Um, and I think there, I mean, uh, you know, you know, you know, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson actually is an interesting study on what I'm about to say, which is, uh, you know, the, that vernacular black music, um, you know, a black composer writing in that style and verging on you know, the atonal or is, mm-hmm. um, is potentially challenging for people when they, when you, when you hear, when you see a score of Schoenberg, I, you know, like I've heard people say, you know, Oh, I love Florence Price, especially those notes that just, they sound like ro- wrong notes, but you know, they're so wrong. They're right. I'm like, hmm. they're not wrong. <laughs> those notes are not wrong, man. Right. It's like right. those, that's, that's the sound that those are very, you know? Um, and so, but you, you would never, say that about Schoenberg. You wouldn't say that about Webern. You wouldn't say mm-hmm. not that Florence, Florence Place is worlds away from the, you know, the Viennese school, but, um, you know, you wouldn't say that. And so, uh, you know, it, there is a, you know, there's a, that is my less hopeful answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you ap- approach, or how have you been approaching uh, preparing Julia Perry's violin concerto, considering, yeah. you know, the vernacular conversation, considering the fact that this is a piece that uh, people haven't heard, at least not this arrangement. So there's a sense of responsibility. I, I wonder if you, you'll talk about just the general approach you've been taking. Um, well, first is learning the learning these, these notes, man. This is like, it's, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing is just bring beauty and beauty and richness and just to to these you know it's there's a lot of double there's a lot of um chromatic just double stop triple stops and there's some tempos in there that are just like absolutely fearsome you know so uh i that's fun actually that's super fun i love i've been working just on this thing for months i mean uh, i was talking to james blatchley with experiential orchestra he called me in may and then we got it confirmed in like june or something and then I got the score in July and I've just been working on it like nonstop since July. Um, and so just, just on a pure beauty, just making the violin sing level. That's, 
it's fun to be able to do that with this piece, which is so incredibly challenging. And um, it, the, the writing for the violin isn't, um, it doesn't feel typical. I'm not sure how else to say that, you know, there's yeah. all these like, double stops here that jump up. And then, then we got these like pass triplet passages that are very repetitive and almost like Baroque um, in that, like the, the rhythmic, the rhythmic uh, structure just is just very repetitive, but the harmony is just kind of moving around. Um, and it's, you know, str string crossing wise, kind of like Ramsian in terms of there's this like awkwardness, but you understand what they're doing. It's like almost written for piano, but played on violin. Um, so just bringing beauty to it is the, the first thing. And then um, I just imagine it's, there's this kind of like sat, there's this intensity and and kind of, um, kind of not, I don't want to say screaming, but, you know, angst quality to the music as much kind of atonal music has, but there's this also like a layer of sadness in there, mm -hmm. which permeates like the, the first theme is a, is a, is a double stop figure that kind of moves it's a, 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 the bottom line of the double stop is a half step moving down and the top line is a tritone going up. And then she moves that by a fifth, by a fifth. Um, and so there's, that's the pattern that kind of very consistently and intensely permeates the whole entire, every, it feels like every note is generated from that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I wouldn't say that feels like I'm not, I'm not hearing the, uh, the, the quote unquote vernacular in that way. But I am hearing the, the 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 sense of for me I relate to it through the blues you know that sense of like uh, like there's this moaning thing and so mm -hmm. for me I feel like I that's how I would relate to it but that's how I would personally Curtis Stewart would relate to most music anyway sure so you know I and I don't want to say anything about what I never try to assume what a, where a composer is actually coming from but I just try to figure out what I can bring to it. Yeah. And, and it just brings to mind, I, I think this recurring issue, I can, you know, keep up with you in conversation when you're talking about these double stops and tritone relationships mm -hmm. and things. I think one of the broader uh, goals, at least for many people, when we're talking about platform and music by these uh, folks who we haven't heard from is that maybe the audiences will be different. I wonder mm -hmm. how, how you think about connecting mm -hmm. this piece of music, the aesthetics and everything that we're talking about to an audience who may not know what a tritone is or who may not yeah. know what a double stop is how how can those connections be made um yes i think it, when i'm i uh when i'm speaking on what a tritone is it's certainly like what <laughs> try who? <laughs> try who? um you try me um but uh i think they can i think that it's very clear in, in terms of her writing it's like there are these bricks that are being repeated and there's different colors have they, they they come back in different colors and they and you just see her like being very brilliant and moving it around. And I think um, whoever may or may not be interested in Julia Perry, either because they want to identify with her on whichever level it happens to be as a woman, as a person of color, as a person who was going through uh, mental illness, as a person who had a financial hardship due to health conditions, as a person who was dealing with a stroke and then trying to push her creativity, someone who started very as a massive talent played with, you know, had music played by the New York Philharmonic and then kind of like got sick and then was kind of pushed over here by her community. And then it's kind of like just kept right, but, but actually kept writing music yeah. even, you know, throughout. Um, so if you, you can relate to that person on what, it, whichever of those narrative levels and then just witness 
their brilliance on stage and just watch them play as a composer. You're watching them play with ideas. Um, and uh, I think I think that is hopefully <laughs> what someone who maybe doesn't know what a tritone or 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 a half step or whatever um, can potentially get from a concert like this. How did all of this start in the first place? I wonder if if you can talk about uh, what initiated this project, this uh, partnership with the Experiential Orchestra, and yeah, what 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 got you? Uh, what what got the piece of music in front of you in the first place? Yeah, so James and I, I've known James for years. I've been playing in the Experiential Orchestra. There's one really fun concert that we did, uh, the uh, Rite of Spring Dance Party. You know, the Rite <laughs> of Spring. You know, for people who don't know, the Rite of Spring was this piece that, uh, you know. Uh, it, it, people rioted at its premiere, you know, mm-hmm. and so, uh, James kind of flipped that on its head and it's like, well, why don't we just dance to it now? You know, a hundred years later, we can have a dance party. So, <laughs> so did tired. everybody die? Is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was, everybody was sacrificed. Their former selves <laughs> were released by and they, when they left the concert, they were different people. Um, yeah, they, uh, uh, so that was really cool. I did these other works with him in Lincoln Center, part of Friends of Lincoln Center or something like that, where the audience gets to sit inside of the orchestra. They sit in between the players and they get to see the in we get to talk to the players and we move around and they move around. So the the you know, you get to feel that energy. Um, and so I've just had a relationship with James. I did some readings with him in his house in New York. Um, I don't know, 15 years when he was just like cutting, cutting his teeth getting into conduct conducting. Um, and so we've just been close. And so I think I had this performance at the Grammys and I think he saw that and he was like, wow, I've been looking for the person to play this piece and work with. And so he reached out to me and I just was so excited, excited. I thought I was just playing the piece. And then we started collaborating on what the program would look like. Um, and so we were talking about, I love the idea of pairing Perry with Coleridge, uh, Taylor Perkinson, who right. actually, didn't wasn't a contemporary of Perry. He was kind of a contemporary of her, but definitely lived at least 30 or 40 years after she passed. Um, but occupies a similar kind of modernism. Um, I would say that Julia Perry comes from like spirituals gone, spiritual has gone modern. Mm-hmm. And uh Polish Taylor Perkinson is, you know, he did arrangements for Marvin Gaye. He was working with did symphonic arrangements for Max Roach. He, you know, he was working um with with orchestras and things like that. Um, and so he, he's taking that popular idiom and then pushing modernism gone, you know, black popular, you know, uh, whatever that means. And so it's interesting to pair for me, that's what makes those people interesting. And then, you know, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson was named after Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Right. So we're, we're doing um, my own, I, I've commissioned and I've also created arrangements of his 24 Negro melodies, um, the one we're doing at this concert is Deep River. And so we're including um, that uh, we are still confirming, but I think what's going to happen right now is um, we will be in the, the orchestra will be in the round and, and the audience will be within. And so we'll be walking towards the center playing Deep River. And there's some stomps and some um, like hollers and things like that. And call and response between the orchestra and me, between the, between me and the audience and things like that. So in terms of both singing and playing. And so it should be pretty fun. I mean, in terms of how that happened, we were just on that call and James was like, what do you think? And so we just went back and forth. He's such an open, brilliant, um, warm uh, guy, you know, yeah. and we know each other and we trust each other. So we've just, and and the Experiential Orchestra just has a history of doing awesome 
awesome music they did the they premiered uh julia perry's prelude which was also arranged from piano to orchestra uh by roger zahab and they also premiered uh i don't know if they i don't know if this was the premiere but it may have been but it, it was the dawson negro folk symphony which is an amazing amazing mm -hmm. piece um and uh they they did that last year and they've just been doing the work this whole time so it's just you know like minds and you know making it making it happen yeah, the middle movement of that Dawson is is my favorite with those uh, dramatic swells. It's just, you know, one of the many examples of works that exist and exist by Black people. And we're just, you know, we're, we're just now uh, getting there. Uh, I understand also on this uh, upcoming concert, you'll be playing from uh, the Grammy nominated of Power. <laughs> I, I wonder, does it change a piece of music for it to be grammy nominated do you approach it differently does it make you want to just put it on the shelf and leave it alone how do you deal with that i mean the piece i'm playing is really hard so i would love to be able to just put that one on the shelf but <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i ended up playing that one i i didn't know about the piece um until alicia hall moran and jason moran approached me about a concert they were doing called two wings in carnegie hall which celebrated the um a total of the story of the the great migration of you know Black people moving from the South to North and, and just how music moved with them and how they created the lifeblood of American music in that way, just, just through that movement. Um, <clears throat> and so one of the pieces I had to play was in the main stage of Carnegie Hall, Horace Taylor Perkins and Louisiana Blues Strut. And uh, I had to walk Tanya Leon, you know, Pulitzer Prize. At that time, mm -hmm. she wasn't prize winning, but about to be Pulitzer Prize winning Tanya Leon conducting. And I had to walk from one side of the stage to the other and back playing this piece, which is super rhythmic and super uh amazing and so that's that is the first piece on this album of power um don't get confused the first thing you hear are gonna would be like hospital beeps and blips because <laughs> there's there's kind of two stories happening in that album it's the story of of just dealing with a pandemic and protesting and figuring out how to be healthy and but also returning and all and and taking care of my mom at that time. So yeah. there's like little blips of me speaking to my mom. Um, anyway, so what I think that that does change is I'm playing that piece, maybe to start the concert or not, I'm not sure. And I'll, there'll be some form of movement happening solo. That's a solo violin piece. But we're also, we also, somebody, David Crivet, who also runs Chamber Music New York, um, created an arrangement of the piece for violin with orchestra. Uh, which also includes a, like a new cadenza and so and all these new aspects. So I have to like learn it again <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and hopefully some aspects of of movement and stomping and um, things like that. So I guess the things that change are maybe the, the music itself develops into different versions of itself. Yeah. Um, I can't help but to think about, you know, when we uh, you're you're naming all of these incredible people from the field, all of these incredible black folks who just e exist in uh, so-called classical music, instrumental music. One of the things that I really uh, value about you, something I look up to, is your ability to just fit into all of these different spaces. You can be, you know, at uh, the Met or Carnegie Hall very comfortably. You can be a room in a room full of rappers very comfortably. <laughs> That's not the case for all of the uh, people of color, specifically within yeah. our field. I wonder yes. um, what, what your words are or ideas are on getting more of us outside, so to speak. Mm -hmm. How do we connect our identity 
to uh, other folks who shared uh, the the identity, um, but maybe not the the music or maybe not mm. the 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 training, the perspective. How do we bridge those gaps? I mean, you seem to have done it quite brilliantly. Mm. Mm, that's that's deep. That's one of those hard hitting questions. I should have. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I should have called you beforehand. <laughs> I know. I needed that. I need. I needed that prep, guys. <laughs> um, but. I would say that first of all, the question is, do you know people of color don't need to step into anything other than what they want to be playing? So right. that's number one. So like if I'm, you know, if any uh person of color that's playing violin does not need to play jazz, hip hop, anything else. So that's that's one, just to remove that sense of pressure. But if there was if there were people who were in the classical field that wanted to expand out, you know, it does take work. And I think a lot of times that first time that you do it, it feels, it, despite having the background, it actually feels, for me, it felt bad because I'm not sounding like I, like I know this other music so well and I'm playing this, other, this thing and I'm not sounding, I don't, it doesn't feel like it's my soul speaking right now. And mm-hmm. so um, just take being, having that grace and patience and just finding people to connect with having a band to play with and try things out. So that's, there's that. But if we're talking about people from outside the classical world, let's say hip hop and, and jazz, trying to feeling this real resonance with quote unquote classical music and wanting to enter that space. Um, yeah, there is, there is a, a real, first of all, there's a whole bunch of code switching that has to happen, not has to, but at this point probably has to happen mm. given, you know, I remember, um, even when I was talking, I don't want to name people's names, but I'm, you know, speaking to pe- people a certain way um, about music, you know, oh, that's a vibe. Oh, this is a, you know, can we just move around this a certain way? You know, just speaking to people a certain way causes them to either fret or be interested or kind of um, uh, think that the music is somehow uh, this other magical entity. Um, so there's the code switching slash being able to explain slash speak speak their language, which mm-hmm. I think I've forced myself. I've just I've taken it upon myself to do, and I I actually see the ability. I've talked to my dad about this, who's an educator and a jazz musician and teacher, and uh, we we actually we talk about code switching as a superpower and not not a not a, a burden a burden, which it is, yeah. but it, you know it you know just you know it is what it is. So it's also a superpower. Um, so there's that, there's the cultural bit. And then there's also just the notation, which is a prop, you know, it's, there's not just to remove it from culture and bias and racism and all that stuff for two seconds, which is laden, but, um, uh, just the notation is just not consistent between styles. Like if, you know, I'm talking to Darren Deshaun, brilliant. He wrote this piece called Brobot Johnson talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, um, the futuristic, um, oh shoot, what's the. Um, uh, it's like a sci-fi telling of a robot trying to become black robot, trying to become human. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, it's like Frankenstein meets it's because his, his maker died. Anyway. So I've, I've spent time with him. I spent, you know, 10 or 13 years just talking to him and I understand what he means when he's, he says, uh, you know, let's do that three times with, and what that means in terms of, that doesn't mean three bars. It doesn't mean three beats. It means actually three loops. And sometimes it doesn't mean three loops. It means three verses and sometimes it doesn't, you know, and so understanding just the literal notate, the difference in notation 
and when to ask a question, when to just listen, when to blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's notation issues there. Um, uh, I don't want to just label a whole bunch of problems. I'd like to be, yeah, <laughs> somehow, <laughs> I'd like to be somehow, uh, aspirational. Um, but I, I, there, there are so many people out there and it's actually so exciting. Um, when we see those people in groups together and there are organizations trying to make, to bridge those divides. So, yeah. um, yeah, you know, we're working on it. We're and it's one, it's one thing to have these conversations uh, when it comes to programming, you know, having these conversations externally, but you also create lots of music. You have a, a collaboration with the American Composers Orchestra coming up in, in 2023. I wonder how all of this applies or if you apply any of this to your own creations and what you just spin out of the air. Um, if I apply all the stuff. Yeah. So actually the, for sure. I mean, the, the order of music actually in of power is, is a code is a massive code switch for me because hmm. I'm starting with the, you know, that Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, which is a totally through composed written down piece that everybody seems to think is improvised. <laughs> and then we go to a piece by Paganini, which is the opposite. You know, it's, it's people, classical people, I guess would know that, but suddenly there's like, like there's drum and bass on there. Mm -hmm. And then we go into a piece that I wrote um, based on lift every voice and sing. It is lift every voice and sing, but totally written out. Again, people somehow think it's improvised and, you know, because it, there's some chops in there and there's some kind of like, uh, there's a feeling of backbeat and things like that. People suddenly feel like, oh, that, that must not be classical music. But the point is that doing things so it feels like it's coming from one style, but it is actually created and the process of generating it is very much out of the, um, uh, I never know what words to say, like the Western classical tradition. There's that, I, people don't like saying that anymore. The Western, yeah. whatever the, whatever the European, blah, 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 right. blah. I don't, we know, you know what I'm talking about. Classical music. Um, um, so the, the different, actually, I guess, I guess to boil it down is the difference between process and product. So like I used to teach music theory. I taught music theory to jazz kids. I taught music theory to classical students. I taught music theory to vocalists at LaGuardia High School in New York. And I just understood, you know, you understand where people are starting and then where they want to get to. And so there's a process. But, you know, there's only it's like the subway. You could you could we can all get to 42nd Street and you can start from many different places. But we're, we're getting to that that sound. And also. We can also be taking the same train and get to 42nd and get off, a, get on at different stops. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea is that you're, you're all kind of filtering in. And then at a certain point in the process, once we all are speaking a similar enough language, we can just, we're on a similar, a much more similar process as opposed to all speaking very different things and everything works very differently. That was a very abstract answer to your question. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, I appreciate that. How can uh, folks uh, keep up with what's going on, what you got coming up, and uh, and just learn more about you in general? Um, I usually keep my website up to date, curtisjstewart.com. I've got an Instagram handle, Curtis Stewart Violin. I think there's an underscore in there somewhere or another. Um, I keep that pretty much up to date. And um, there's some scores on 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 Bright Shiny Things Records is also helping me publish some of my music. Um, and my manager is Mike Fox at, uh, <laughs> I've seen Fox performances, depending on who I'm talking to right now, but, uh, yeah, so the <laughs> people can just check, check me out on, on all those different places. And I just want to give a big shout out to, um, 
James Blatchley, again, um, the conductor of the Experiential Orchestra, awesome organization, constantly creating, constantly bringing people together around music in different ways and making them feel whatever music they happen to be playing in really beautiful ways. Janina Norpoth, who did this great arrangement of Ye Who Seek the Truth, um, and also Hamilton Berry, who helped me do the, we co-created co the arrangement on Deep River, which is uh, Samuel Korsh Taylor. Well, so the the last thing I wanted to ask you, you know, sometimes I like to pick on New Yorkers because it seems like people who live in New York forget that there is a rest of the world. Uh, you, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but of course, you know, you and, and public quartet, you know, go on tour, visit different places, perform uh, in in different areas. Some cities you have great experiences. Some cities you have not so great experiences. Mm. I won't name any cities, but mm. I wonder mm. if you could speak to. Um, what the the broader national, maybe even global uh, perspective uh, has has taught you, and how that um, mm -hmm. impacts maybe the way that you approach performance, approach composition. A New York new music crowd is very different than a, a San Antonio new music crowd, for example. Right. Well, what are, what are your learnings from just being in front of so many different types of people in different parts of the country? One thing that's really surprised me, we were just in Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, and we played our What is American program there. Um, and this guy, several, actually a couple of people came up to us afterwards. They, they usually really love the Dvorak, this like reimagining re of Dvorak using the Negro spirituals and Native American folk songs that kind of inspired his original work. We kind of go back to the source material and we improvise on that and re reformat that work. So that's the Dvorak. But what was so awesome at Kansas was they were like, oh, Roscoe Mitchell, you guys commissioned <laughs> Roscoe Mitchell from the AACM, the American, you know, creative musicians. Yeah. Um, you know, this other guy came up, just like, oh, I, I really can't. I really wanted to hear that Ornette Coleman improvisations. I really wanted to hear that. So that spun my assumptions as the as the jaded New York, as the whatever New Yorker um, <laughs> on its head. Because I would have assumed that, you know, because we did the, and nobody seems to, we did these arrangements of, you know, Tina Turner, uh, Betty Davis, uh, Bette Davis, Bette, sorry, Betty David Davis, Alice Coltrane, and Ida Cox. I think people really enjoy that work, but they don't, that's not necessarily why they show up. So in other words, like doing the, the music that is pop, has those pop names on it is not necessarily why people show up, which also spins my you know biases on on its head um so there's that i just want to put that out there and then yeah there's certainly you know um why uh you know uh we're doing all we're doing a program of only jesse montgomery we need to we need to add some recognizable names so that we can whatever you know and that actually that concert was in new york city mm. <laughs> so you know it goes both ways i mean i'm, I'm sorry i'm i'm like challenging your actual question but i guess uh what i've learned is uh, I think people, once people get into the space and hear the music, they, they will feel with whatever way they feel, they might think that they want to come in and hear some Brahms. And I want to hear a string quartet play string quartets, like the way I heard the Guarneri quartet play and all that. And they, they'll roll up and hear Dvorak and, uh, and hear us improvising on Dvorak and then understand that, wow, this is just exciting. I'm just feeling a different way. They may not want to only hear improvising string quartets for the rest of their lives, but it has opened something up for them. We did, we just did a concert in Beacon, New York, um, where, you know, they actually, the, the, the venue had the most people at that concert in their whole series. 
but they were all different than the people who had shown up to the concerts mm. for the previous part of the series. So that's an interesting one, like, you know, anecdote, you know, I'm not sure what that means either. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that all new music and all things like that would, would bring it an entirely new crowd that it surpasses the old, you know, it doesn't mean that we're trying to replace audiences. It just means um, that doing things that outside of the norm has, has an effect that is not negative. That's all. There can be an effect that is not negative. You're not going to lose your audience. Those to here to, to the presenters listening, you're not necessarily going to lose your audiences, you know, by doing something that isn't doesn't have Brahms or Beethoven on it. Um, and it's and I think there's something about the framing. There's something about the meaning of what you're presenting. There's something about the consistent work that you're doing to to frame that to, to frame that music that audience w w be begin to believe in you. They begin to believe in who you are and, and what you what you stand for as opposed to just what you happen to be presenting, you know, on, on May 3rd of Susanna Malky leading the Concertgebouw there uh, in a work called A Short Piece for Orchestra by Julia Perry, just to offer a little bit of a sample of uh, Julia Perry's uh, sort of vibe, sort of aesthetic there. So imagine uh, that composer having written a violin concerto. I think it's exciting for, you know, uh, music like that to be unearthed and platformed mm -hmm. after uh, so many years. And so great uh, to uh, have the opportunity to talk with Curtis about it. Can't wait to hear more and learn more about how that uh, performance went. You said that you had uh, recently aired some music uh, uh, on your radio show by Julia Perry. She's a name that you know now, but just to offer some context, probably not a name that you've known for a long time. I mean, I think Julia Perry is still obscure, even among those who do this sort of work, right. platforming, was, you know, women and folks of color. I was about to say the only reason why I know it is because I'm in it. Yeah. Uh, the casual listener probably would n not recognize it. Right. And as more casual listeners, as you say, become more familiar with Florence Price and William Grant still, I wonder, you know, if it's time for that beyond Florence Price and William Grant Still conversation. I think it's hard for me not to think about that when I think about platforming music by Julia Perry, not that all of these composers can't exist and, you know, space has to be taken away for space to be given. Yep, yep. Do you think we're even at the point where we need to be having that conversation or asking that question, how do we get beyond Florence Price and William Grant Still considering, you know, Folks like Julia Perry, who we need to learn about as well. The thought came to mind, your friend in New York, Caesar, yeah. who you bring up a couple times uh, here on the pod, and he gives presentations on Paul Robeson and Florence Price, and he told you, people don't know the name Florence Price. And when, and I'm when, like, when you tell me that three, I was beside myself. Three years. <laughs> for three years, I've been playing you know, her symphony and, and violin concertos and her uh, her her solo piano music. So we have to remember 
who among the listenership out there still is not as knee deep in it as you and I are. Yeah. And you got to start, you got to, I, I don't know how long it needs to stay out there before people go, okay, we're ready for the next bite. We're ready for the next uh, artist to get familiar with. I don't know. I mean, Beethoven has been a name celebrated or at least just known at the very least mm -hmm. over multiple generations, even from, you know, just the, uh, excuse me, American perspective, the uh, United States perspective. Your dad probably cannot name an actual work by Beethoven, but he knows that name. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I would imagine that you have uh, family members even, you know, older uh, than your dad when they were around. The name Beethoven was one that they knew and understood, even if they didn't know anything about it. So, yep. you know, we, we have to get, you know, our Beethoven. So, and that's even problematic, you know, not to make comparisons like that, but we have to get William Grant Still and Margaret Bonds and all of these people as familiar you know, as those names Schubert and Beethoven, before we even can sit, from my, in my opinion, before we even consider pushing anyone to the side. That's what has to happen first. And there are plenty of other composers for us to move out of the way so that we can have Florence Price and William Grant Still and Julia Perry, one of those composers we're about to talk about here in the fourth movement. But mm. to get us um, into this fourth movement, we're going to listen to uh, the tail end of an excerpt of uh, one of this man's most famous tracks. This is uh, the chorus from, and he shall purify the sons of Levi by, yes, you heard me say it, the one and only, what's the man's first name? <laughs> George. George Frederick Handel. See, that's how that's how off of my spirit this man is. Couldn't even remember his first and middle name. Anyway. Everybody <laughs> had that name, though. <laughs> Here's a little bit from uh, Handel's Messiah to get us into the final movement. <laughs> let that one go on for a while and that's the thing it's fascinating music to me the first thing i'm gonna say is that i'm not talking about the quality of this music when i shit on this piece of music <laughs> because it is something that i can think about music theoretically like the the math behind the music and listen to all of those melismas that you love scott and <laughs> and, and how that interweaves no you actually don't love it um Okay, we're getting up on the holiday season, and there are going to be a lot of performances of this piece that are coming. I've spoken about my opinions on Handel's Messiah before, and you know the fact that this piece wouldn't exist, maybe wouldn't exist in its form, or wouldn't have been uh, conceived in the same way if it weren't for George Friedrich Handel's investments and involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. You know, mm -hmm. that is enough for me to tell people to put this piece to the side 
and let's just talk about something else for the holiday season. There are other selections out there. I guess my first question is, or the first thing to consider is that, is that a standout sin among all of the uh, Western European composers about all the white men who wrote the golly walk, cake walk, or the knicker dance, or whatever they wrote, <laughs> is that a is what George Frederick Handel did a standout misstep? And you can't even call it a misstep because it's just fucked up. But is that something that stands apart from what all of these other composers did? Is it fair for me to sit here and pick on George Frederick Handel? That's fair. It's fair game. I agree. I agree. Now, when we start adding up, you know, the the things, are we talking about, again, from your perspective, are we talking about the, well, let's put a disclaimer before we uh, air these pieces of music or platform these pieces of music? Do we have the pre-concert talk? Do we put something in the program? Is that, you know, a... a, a, a a benchmark, mm -hmm. a, a, a stepping stone. Yeah. For me, though, th it's different than a lot of people. For me, it comes down to my personal taste. To me, <clears throat> the Baroque sounds like my aunt's living room smells. Okay. I mean, it just, <laughs> it, 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 it does not hit for me on any level. Okay. But that does not mean that I can't respect it like you talk about, because I do. And I know of orchestra, I think even the Minnesota Orchestra is going to put up a uh, a talk or some sort of a, a program about Handel and his background, and then they're going to play Messiah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, uh, you're 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 making the aesthetic argument, which I think is a is a fair argument because when we talk about cultural competency and uh, diversity of programming, we have to talk about aesthetics as well. Even if the aesthetic was not so baroquey, beepy boopy, as you <laughs> as you say. It seems like the the issue of the the uh, the approximation to slavery would just disqualify it. I mm -hmm. mean, let's imagine right. if there was a composition, Scott, that was born because someone invested in the Nazi party and concentration camps and they got a little bit of money and they were able to write a piece of music. I don't feel like we would be platforming that piece of music year after right. year. Right. But it's the anti-blackness, and not to specifically pick on you know, that point. I mean, I, I can say any, if someone um, uh, made money uh, in conjunction with the extermination of indigenous people or or uh, or subjugating the rights of women, I mean, I, I, I can put anything can in that space. Mm -hmm. You know, I just feel like that huge, just black mark, for lack of a better phrase, on the history and on the legacy of this composer, and specifically this piece of music, should disqualify it. I just do not think we should be platforming it. Yes, um, and I've been engaging this conversation just recently uh, about how Messiah is going to be approached this year, because in a lot of these instances, it's just nothing. No, no other option has been offered up around Christmas, or very few have been offered up. And so people will do, will, they'll go and hear the Messiah because that's just what you do, yeah. right? And I brought up the point. People are going to say, they'll, they'll discount your organization, your radio station, your company, just because you, you platform Messiah. And then the person's going to come back and say, well, if you do enough research into the, the lives of a, of a lot of these people, then you're going to find things that are problematic now. And I said, you, you know, know what I said. And do you know what they're going to say to that? Cancel all Cancel, of them motherfuckers. Then they get, too. get all of them out. Yeah. That's what, and be ready for that. 
But I think Handel's Messiah is a place where people could really, arts institutions could really show what they're made of. Yes. With this huge example, this huge, you know, we can we can go in and and stop uh playing recordings by, you know, whatever conductor or composer or whatever who's, mm-hmm. you know, deep in the fabric and people won't really notice. That's easy. This is a this is a noticeable one. This yep. is this is where we really shape up how yep. much you mean it. Yep. You know. So, you know, that that's just where I am and the dissonance, the struggle that I have is that I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of friends who are hired on by these large Large organizations to sing some of the prominent canonical, so-called canonical uh, solo lines of this piece of music. Again, I think it's a very fascinating piece of music. It's not a piece of music that I'm saying I can't enjoy. It's a piece of music that was born under circumstances that I can't brush under the rug or that I can't think about. So, you know, Shout out to all, especially all the black and brown singers out there singing uh, Handel's Messiah over this holiday season. But I'm not going to be in the audience. And somebody who has a problem with the uh, the uh, the connection that this piece of music has to the transatlantic slave trade, they likely won't be in the audience either. Or maybe they will be. You know, it's I'm not a representative for the for the blacks. Tm. You know, I'm not. <laughs> we, we are we are not a monolith. Um, and I know that there are varying opinions on this. I just think that this piece of music being offensive from a historical uh, perspective, and rightfully so, that not being an issue, that not being a deal breaker for arts organizations, knowing that people have a problem with that and platforming it anyway, that says something about the arts organization. Damn. Yep. Like, what am I supposed to just pretend that doesn't exist? Am I supposed to just ignore that line of thinking? That's when we're talking about the gaslighting and all of that thing. And we have replacements for it, goddammit. I mean, Margaret Bonds wrote a whole thing out here called Ballad of the Brown uh, King. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this this uh, black magi that y'all disrespect year after year. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and not to mention, you know, we were talking about, uh, uh, again, rest in peace, rest in power to Ned Roram, who studied with Margaret Bonds, you know. So even in all of all of the uh, uh, stories about him, that's something that was not pushed to the front or or even mentioned by most of them. And, you know, we're doing something similar here by backseating a piece of music that we don't have to have a disclaimer about or a pre-concert talk about, you know, for, for the sake of tradition, for the sake of this piece of music born from black oppression. What do I do about, again, back to the point, I want to reiterate the fact that there are a lot of people that I respect that platform this and, and take on performances of it and are featured in X, Y, and Z. I don't yet have the answer to how personally I approach that. Or 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 engage that I'm I'm just not there you know I'm 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 an evolving individual like everyone else, but for right now my answer is if you have a choice to platform celebrate whatever handles Messiah or not choose the or not that's my answer that's my approach what do you think if you have a choice to to do something else. Or, or, or maybe I'll ask you, if for you, is it worth, and this is no value judgment, is it worth the trouble to fight against this piece of music when it comes to programming, especially when we talk about the holiday season? I'm not airing it. Will I, will, I will reiterate what I said during season two, the holiday season of season two. Ejecting the Messiah goes a long way 
to proving to communities of color that you're serious. That's what I say. That's what he says, and that's what I say as well. So God bless us, everyone. Happy holiday season. George Friedrich Handel, you know. I don't know this man. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. Because as y'all remember, I I couldn't even remember the man's first name. (laughs) Anyway, see y'all next week. Thank you. (laughs) 